Our guest this episode is Aliza Schatzman, a graduate of the Washington University in St. Louis School of Law and someone who once aspired to work as a prosecutor for a long legal career. However, the trajectory of her professional life changed when she entered her judicial clerkship. Though you will hear her briefly discuss that personal experience, the majority of her focus in our conversation was on her nonprofit, the Legal Accountability Project, and on legislation related to the same goal, holding judges accountable for misconduct. If you want to learn more about her personal story, you can read her U.S. Congressional testimony for the House Committee on the Judiciary with a link in the show notes. Now, without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Aliza. Sure. So I'm Aliza Schatzman. I'm the president and founder of the Legal Accountability Project. We are a nonprofit aimed at ensuring that law clerks, so new attorneys, have a positive clerkship experience while extending support and resources to those who don't. But that's definitely not what I set out to do when I graduated from law school. I went to Wash U Law in St. Louis, graduated about four years ago now, and I aspired to be a homicide prosecutor in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. So after doing four DOJ internships, I decided to clerk in D.C. Superior Court during the 2019 to 2020 term, intending to launch my career as a homicide AUSA. And as we'll talk more about, the messaging around clerkships at my law school, at your law school, at all law schools, is just uniformly positive. I was told that I would develop this lifelong mentor-mentee relationship with the judge for whom I clerked, and that this position was going to have only professional benefits. As we'll get into, that is not that was not my experience, but it is also too many others' experience. Clerkships are not a uniformly positive experience. It's important to be mindful about who you clerk for, just like it's important to be mindful about any legal job in any workplace. But due to the opacity of the clerkship system right now and the lack of information about judges as managers and clerkship experiences that's accessible to students, people cannot be mindful about this really important career decision right now. And so you were entering a clerkship, um, and, and you're right that there's a lot of positive reviews, um, certainly um, encouragement to go into a clerkship to um, kickstart somebody's legal career, get mentorship, um, understand the all the various types of cases that show up in court. Um, so there's a lot of benefits uh, that are advertised for clerkships, um, but it seems like you didn't have just a purely beneficial experience. I did not, <laughs> no. <laughs> if you could explain... Was there a turning point? Was it like you showed up day one and realized, oh, this isn't going to be good? Or what was that like? So I showed up for training in late August um, before the clerkship officially started. And it was conveyed to me that the now former judge really did not train his clerks, that it was on the outgoing clerks to train the incoming clerks. So I guess there were red flags pretty early. Um, clerkship starts officially in September and beginning pretty much just weeks into it, the judge begins to harass me and discriminate against me because of my gender, but it did escalate over time. And I certainly tried to stick it out. I think there probably were red flags. This was also just a poor fit. I am a little bit, my views on crime are more conservative than the former judges. And that should have been a red flag too. Um, I am an assertive person. 
former judge, not so much. That could also have been a red flag. But those are things I would not have, I was not able to learn in advance of securing this clerkship. And so why was it that you couldn't learn these things before your clerkship? Great question. So I spend a lot of time now talking to students, law school admins, judges, and I always ask people, how do students obtain information about judges as managers and the clerkship experience before applying for clerkships? And spoiler alert, whether you go to a T5 or a regional school, there is a real dearth of information about judges as managers and clerkship experiences that is candid and accessible to students handful of law schools, primarily in the T14, do a post-clerkship survey and house those in an internal database. But as you may know from poking around, those reviews are overwhelmingly positive. Nobody is empowered to say anything negative about a judge. That is the messaging coming from law schools, that you should never say anything negative about a judge, that you should fear reputational harm in the legal community, that you should fear retaliation. And that is a problem. That means that people are not able to access the candid information. Now, in my situation, I wasn't really aware that the judge who hired me had employed previous WashU Law students. Um, even had I known that, I do not think I'd be able to get in touch with those people before interviewing for the clerkship. And I don't think those people would have given me the candid information about this judge's conduct. So there are several levels going through this in which you can't access written information that is candid. It is challenging to connect with former clerks and it is challenging to connect with former clerks who are going to give you the candid info if the experience is not positive. So you're talking about there's some resources available if you're at one of these top five or top 14 schools um, to learn about the you know, potential outcomes or, or the things to look out for with a judge. But even then, there's some limited um, candis, uh, candor. It and is very limited. It is very limited. If you look in these post-clerkship surveys, they are overwhelmingly positive with the occasional contact me, which is supposed to be known as a euphemism for maybe I want to share a negative experience with you. But let's think about the clerkship system. You are, in the span of a couple weeks, submitting 50 or 100 applications on Oscar. If you're applying to state court judges, it's even more disparate in terms of accessing information about a variety of judges in a variety of places. You do not have the capacity to speak with several former clerks before each interview, nor do they necessarily have the capacity to speak with you as well as several other former applicants prior to an interview. There is just a real inability for students to access the information they need. So I would say that it is very limited. And why do you think people are hesitant to say anything or, or, or give reviews? The messaging starting on law school campuses, 1L Fall, is that judges deserve absolute respect and total deference in all things. And if you think about what the clerkship programming and messaging looks like on these law schools, it is judges coming to campus to create pipelines for students. It is alums coming back to talk about their uniformly positive experiences. It is messaging that you should accept the first clerkship you are offered. It is messaging that a clerkship is a gift, that an interview is a gift to be cherished. 
Rarely will you ever hear about a less than positive experience. And that messaging creates a culture in which there is silence and fear surrounding the judiciary. A culture of deifying judges, disbelieving law clerks. So it's messaging coming from the law schools. It's also coming from legal employers. It's also coming from former clerks and judges. And I worry that too many former clerks who had a less than positive experience are still not on board with the candid sharing of the less than positive experiences. It's a legal community-wide problem requiring legal community-wide solutions. Yeah, I guess it seems like it would be scary to write a review. And, you know, if you have some person who's overseeing you holds a lot of power, not just over you in your job, but for the rest of your career, potentially. Yes. Um, how would you ask somebody to write a candid review when, you know, that judge maybe has four clerks every year. So it's a pretty limited number of people. And even an anonymized system, they might be able to identify who wrote that thing. Couple of great questions sort of jumping ahead of ourselves into what I'm doing now at the Legal Accountability Project with the anonymous reviews. But here is basically a couple problems with the current system, even at schools that do a post-clerkship survey. Most of them, there's no option to submit anonymously. Also, judges who are alums of that law school can read the surveys as it's alumni-wide access. Those are two problems we address at the Legal Accountability Project. Survey responses are default anonymous, Judges do not have access. It's a resource for students and young alums considering a clerkship with terms of use and a privacy policy and an agreement not to share information with those not authorized to have access. Another spoiler alert, people whose schools do not have an internal database are currently reaching out to students at schools that do to try to get this information. So we know there is an interest in accessing this information from beyond those who have it, which is why we want all law schools to participate in this initiative. So judges will not have access to reading the surveys in our database. And we are not worried about clerks kind of nefariously sharing information contained in the database with those who should not have access. But your question gets to a larger issue, retaliation, reputational harm, the concern that, as my experience illustrates, a judge can have enormous power over a former clerk's career and reputation. Now that is partially on the judiciary to create legal policy and cultural solutions to prevent retaliation. It is also on legal employers to interrogate a judge's negative or lukewarm reference. As long as legal employers take the word of a judge as the end all be all, we will never create the kind of cultural change I'm talking about, which is empowering clerks to share their experiences. As, you, as we're kind of talking about how to address some of these um, power differences, um, I guess, could you explain a little bit more, maybe for somebody who is less familiar with the ins and outs of the legal community, why it is that a judge might be seen as immune to feedback or, or to any sort of people going against them? Yeah, so I'm always careful to say that judges should not be above reviews. They are not above criticism, and any judge who opposes the idea of being reviewed, like other managers, is really somebody you probably don't want to work for, somebody who opposes transparency. 
there are several levels to this. Judges are the most powerful members of our profession. And when it comes to charting the path to a successful legal career, it often starts with a clerkship and a relationship with a judge who's going to serve as a reference. When we think 10 years down the road post-clerkship, legal employers are still contacting judges for a reference, for feedback. So there are cultural reasons why new attorneys are taught to fear pissing off a judge. But there are also legal gaps. Law clerks are exempt from Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Folks like me, who are mistreated, cannot sue their harassers and seek damages for harms done to their lives, which is outrageous. And there are also no legal protections a step further against retaliation by judges. So we have this enormous power disparity between a fresh out of law school student in a clerkship, their first legal job, and this often life tenure judge, one of the most powerful members of the profession, that makes it enormously difficult to speak out in the face of workplace mistreatment, to share your experience, let alone file a complaint afterward, and to really ever speak openly about the experience, even many years later. And I encounter former clerks 10, 20, 30 years post-clerkship who are still fearful about saying anything negative about a judge. But that precludes change, progress, and discipline. And we need to change that culture. And within that culture, um, certainly it's a very history thing. I mean, judges have been around pretty much since the start of our nation. Um, one thing that I've seen in a lot of different uh, movements or, or as resistant to movement and change within um, history institutions is people will say, well, that's just kind of part of the system. Like there's going to be a few bad apples. Um, there's going to be you know, some people who do bad things and it's unfortunately, unfortunately unavoidable because people do bad things sometimes. What would you say to somebody like that? I would say a couple things. I would say we know it's not just a few bad apples because even though the judiciary really fails to collect data on these issues, uh, when they occasionally do an internal workplace survey in the DC circuit alone a couple years ago showed that 57 employees in that circuit alone experienced harassment or retaliation. An additional 134 witnessed or heard about problematic behaviors. One of our 13 federal circuits in just one year suggesting a significant problem. I and my work at the Legal Accountability Project hear from current and former clerks every single day from every single law school and every single courthouse talking about mistreatment. It is a pervasive problem in both the state and federal courts, and there is a judiciary-wide hesitancy to admit the scope of the problem, let alone confront problematic behaviors within their ranks. Yet, I have seen in the enormously positive response to my work and the many thousands, tens of thousands probably, people following what we're doing, a real hunger for candid dialogue about clerkships in particular and the judiciary in general. The judiciary has kind of resisted the Me Too movement up until now, but I really think that clerkships are facing a reckoning. And I encourage everybody to consider clerking, but to be mindful about who they clerk for. And if there are judges right now, and there are, who are committing or have committed misconduct, they need to be disciplined 
Cleaning up our judiciary starts with a groundswell of support from students, from clerks, and from law schools making real changes to increase transparency in the systems. Law schools' failure to share candid information with students right now is contributing to larger problematic behaviors in the judiciary, and it's on everybody to contribute to being part of the solution. You brought up a point of, of holding the judiciary accountable, and uh, in current events, that seems to be a big topic in the news. At the same time, there's some resistance because there's the old Article 3 uh, of the Constitution and people are saying, well, you can't hold them accountable. What do you say to that or any other resistance similar to that? There is oversight of every branch by the other branches of government. Back in 1995, Congress extended Title VII to itself and to the executive branch. Now, Title VII is the workplace law that protects employees against gender discrimination, harassment, and retaliation by their employers. At that time, the judiciary was just vociferously opposed to being regulated, making those separation of powers arguments, even though Congress was extending protections to itself and other branches as well. And they have kind of maintained that position since then. Now, that's not the position of rank-and-file judges, many of whom think Title VII should be extended to them or thought it already did extend to them or ascended from state court benches where it did apply to them. Um, then there's also the question of holding judges accountable in other ways besides the Title VII question. The Judicial Conduct and Disability Act of 1980 is the federal judicial complaint process by which law clerks, attorneys, litigants, or other judges can raise complaints about judges' conduct. Now that needs to be strengthened. There need to be more investigations. There needs to be more robust discipline. So there are lots of ways that we can address these challenges without bumping up against Article Three life tenure. But I have been advocating for a re... I mean, a second look at term limits, um, a second look at mandatory retirement age. So there's lots of issues that need to be addressed. And you're correct that judicial accountability is getting a real reckoning right now in the news. But when we talk about these issues, we tend to focus on the Supreme Court. We focus much less on law clerks, the folks flanking those judges, doing the court's important behind the scenes work. And they deserve protections too. And I think the the folks in judiciary leadership who continue to raise these like separation of powers arguments that are pretty much nonsense and have been refuted by legal scholars, it's just a smokescreen they are hiding behind because they do not want to confront the scope of the problem, let alone take some steps to address it. We are not saying all judges are bad. We are not saying that most judges commit misconduct. We are saying that some do and there would be more evidence of misconduct if we were empowering law clerks and judiciary employees to come forward. Right now, the lack of investigations, the lack of discipline, really sends a message to law clerks that it's not worth coming forward. The judge will not be disciplined. Perhaps you will not even be taken seriously. That's a problem. Yet every year we send thousands, tens of thousands of new graduates into these clerkships without providing them the protections they need. And so your solution, uh, or one of, one of the solutions you've proposed is through the Legal Accountability Project, which is 
to my understanding, essentially a, a database accessible to law students, not to just anybody, so that um, law students, you know, hoping to become law clerks can search through this database and find any sort of um, negative feedback about people's experiences. So it's both positive and negative feedback about judges. We see this as a recruiting tool for judges in courts to help spotlight the excellent managers and mentors. We see it as a DEI initiative to empower more diverse students, historically marginalized groups who disproportionately lack information and formal networks to help them get clerkships. And we see it as a matching tool to help judges and clerks identify good fits. Because as we talked about at the top, not every clerk is a good fit with every judge, but there's not really a way to know that right now. So we have created this centralized clerkships database to democratize information about judges as managers and clerkship experiences. And it's modeled after what a, hand, after what a handful of law schools already do internally. But we ask more and better questions to elucidate a variety of candid information about the clerkship experience. And we are trying to share that information more widely so it's accessible to more students. Because even if you go to a well-resourced school, there is a ceiling on the number of judges your administration knows about, which is dependent on who alums have clerked for in the past and their willingness to share info, which historically, if it's a negative experience, they are not, as well as who your administration and your faculty members know about. But unfortunately, on that latter piece, there's both a lack of information, just information straight up gaps because of the ceiling on the number of judges mm -hmm. and some more nefarious lack of information sharing whereby some schools are prioritizing prestige of clerkship, number of placements, period, over positive experience. And there has been a historic unwillingness to share negative information with the students who need it. So our database corrects both information asymmetries and the lack of information sharing. Is there a legislative route that also needs to be happening? There definitely is, there definitely is. So we've talked about a couple pieces of legislation. We've talked about the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act. That is the judicial complaint process in the federal system. That needs to be strengthened. As the situation with Judge Newman makes clear, there is a lack of information about the disability provision of that legislation. It is unclear how we should be handling judicial fitness questions. It also needs to be strengthened so that we take some of this uh, investigatory process out of the judiciary's chain of command. Historically, judges have been unwilling to investigate, let alone discipline their colleagues. So I think we need to take that out of the judiciary's chain of command. We also need to ensure robust protections against retaliation for clerks and other judicial employees who come forward to report misconduct. There really are no protections right now. So that's the JC and D Act. There's also the Employee Dispute Resolution or EDR plan. That's the internal complaint process, the workplace resolution process, whereby a law clerk can theoretically seek reassignment. Again, needs to be taken out of the judiciary's chain of command, need to strengthen the protections against retaliation. There is also legislation that was introduced a few years ago called the Judiciary Accountability Act, or JA. I wrote about this in a couple places, including the Harvard Journal on Legislation last year, and that would extend Title VII protections to law clerks and judiciary employees, giving them the right to sue and seek damages. That is really important legislation. 
It should be reintroduced and passed this year. Law clerks cannot wait another year for these urgently needed reforms. They would also revise the judicial complaint process such that judges who step down amid a misconduct investigation, those won't cease. So there are several pieces of legislation that need to be passed or strengthened. And I really worry there's just a lack of will to address this in Congress. And the judiciary needs outside pressure from Congress and other groups to take steps. Unfortunately, judiciary leadership's position seems to be, we have solved the problem. But I think that really misses the mark. And they are sending the message that it's not worth coming forward. So it is an all hands on deck um, problem. I really think that the clerkship status quo is a five alarm fire and we need law schools to do better. We need the judiciary and Congress to do better and we need legal employers to do better. But at this point, if you're not part of the solution, you're really just part of the problem. And so if someone's thinking about who should I vote for and, you know, maybe this would be in the 2024 election, which you say is this should be passed even before that. But let's say that Congress, uh, you know, for some reason is slow because uh, sometimes they are. Uh, and so what should somebody be thinking about or, or looking for um, when they're looking at candidates? So the issues we're talking about have generally bipartisan support. I really see them as generational issues mm. that younger judges, the most conservative and the most liberal are with me on these issues, extending title seven, better workplace protections for clerks, understanding that judges are not just interpreting the laws, but they're also managers running a small government workplace. So as we're thinking about the political side of this, it's candidates who are for appointing better judges. We need younger, more diverse folks on the bench who represent a diversity of viewpoints, perspectives. Um, the judiciary needs fresh blood at the end of the day. So I think it's also a red flag. Some of our really old legislators who seem to be clinging to their seats, just like some judges are clinging to their seats. Um, I think we really just need a diversity of life experiences and fresh blood in Congress as well. Got it. And Elisa, are there any other thoughts you have um, that you want to close out with? Yeah. So these issues really affect everybody, whether you clerked or not, whether you're an attorney or not, because we're talking about law clerks, but today's law clerks are tomorrow's prosecutors, public defenders, big law partners, law professors, and judges themselves. When we think about fairness and judicial decision-making, when we think about shaping the next generation of leaders, the clerkship experience informs all of that. And if the clerkship is a negative one, if clerks are homogenous, disproportionately white and male as they are, it has larger implications for the future of the profession. And anybody who's galvanized by learning about this should visit legalaccountabilityproject.org to learn more about what we're doing. If you're a former clerk, you can visit survey.legalaccountabilityproject.org to share your experience. And it's really just about creating larger cultural change treating judges as managers running a small workplace and not deifying them, recognizing that no one is above the law, not even the judges who interpret it. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate you coming to speak. Thank you.
This isn't financial, legal, or medical advice, but we do discuss how we might invest our resources for a healthier society. If you'd like to learn more about today's topic and other public policy issues, check out the website, thejusticepodcast.com.